Thank you, Fred. It's a pleasure to work with you as well. Acts 2.42 is the text that's been assigned to me. It's a wonderful text of Scripture. One of, the, um, one of those texts that just comprehends so much in so few words, which we often find in Holy Scriptures. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Let's pray together. Our Father, with an open Bible in front of us, we all confess that we believe this book is your inspired and errant word of God. We thank you for it. We know that what we have here is a word from heaven. And we ask that we might profit from this verse of Scripture this morning. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to help this one who preaches. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to give ears to hear what the Scriptures have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a well-known national um, preacher who, after he had uh, preached a sermon on a Sunday morning, he was heading home. And while he was heading home, he was explaining to his family that he was soon going to have to teach the book of Acts and that he needed to get an outline for the book of Acts. His little 10-year-old boy was in the back seat. He said, Daddy, he says, I, I've got an outline for you. And he turned his head to him. He says, you've got an outline for me from the book of Acts? He said, yes. He said, well, what is it? He says, well, first in Acts, we see that Jesus went up. And then second in Acts, we see that the spirit came down. And third in Acts, we see that the church went out. Well, we're in the second part of Acts here this morning in Acts 2.42. The spirit has come down. And when the spirit came down, many were saved, 3,000, as you all know. And then after these 3,000 were saved, Luke tells us in this very succinct statement precisely what these people did after they were converted and after the Spirit came down. And it's my happy, happy privilege this morning of, of uh, directing your attention to uh, two basic ways that... This New Testament church is characterized for us here in Acts 2.42. I'll spend most of my time on the second way it's characterized, and actually most of my time on the third observation of the second way it's characterized, but I want to um, cover both points with you. First of all, I want you to notice that this church was a converted church. Secondly, I want you to notice that this church was a committed church, and that's all I have to say. Now, let's go into it. First of all, I point out that this church was a converted church. Where do I get that? Look at the verse. It says they. Who are the they? Well, they were the ones who were converted. If you look with me back up just a few verses, uh, we read that uh, in verse in verse 40, we'll just back up one verse, actually. It says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day were added to them about 3000 souls. So they were the ones who received the word. But we see something else about the they. If we look back up in uh, some previous verses, when Peter preached to them, it says that they were cut to the heart. 
The same ones that received the word were the ones that were cut to the heart. And this is essential for conversion. One must be cut to the heart. Most everyone here this morning knows what it means to be cut to the heart. To have the Spirit of God come and to come with such power that he shows you your sin. And having seen your sin, you cry out in some way, just as these people did, what must we do? And Peter said, you need to be converted. Repent and be baptized. Every single one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said, with many other words, save yourself from this perverse generation. And they did. They believed the gospel. They indeed were converted. Now, this is very, very important because these people who were part of this committed church were, first of all, converted. And sometimes churches don't continue in these things because they're not converted. Now, we are Reformed Baptists. We are Baptists. And one of the great distinctives of Baptist churches and Reformed Baptist churches is that we believe that the membership, to be a member of our church, you must be converted. And I know that all of you, interview members, you hear the testimonies. And to the best of our knowledge, we have converted people. And we must have converted people. If we are to be a committed church, continuing in these great spiritual activities, which are explained to us here in verse 42. Well, let's look at the second way that this church is characterized. I've characterized it secondly, as I said, as a committed church. I want to make four observations. And as I said, I'll spend most of my time on the third observation. The first observation is this. I want you to notice the strength of their commitment. Verse 42. And they continued steadfastly. Literally, we could translate it this way. They were the ones persisting, doing with intense effort, devoting themselves in the apostles' doctrine. It's a very, very strong word. It's the same word that's used back in 14 of chapter 1 when it says that uh, the 120 were in the upper room and they continued with one accord in prayer. They just kept at it. They were continuing steadfastly in these things. They persisted in these things. They were pursuing these things. This, is, this was their life. This was their life. These very spiritual activities, which we'll consider. I, I feel like I'm not emphasizing that enough because you're not rising up in your seats and thinking, yes, this is, this is a church. This is a church that just loves these things. They're persisting in these things. They can't get away from these things. They want these things. It wasn't that the apostles were saying to them, now, brethren, you need to come to the Sunday night service. <laughs> no, they were they were persisting in these things. They really were a second observation. We need to think about the reason that they were committed, that they were a committed church. And of course, there's only one reason. It is because of God's grace. 
that had come to their lives. This was a sovereign work of the sovereign Christ. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come. The Holy Spirit came and Peter stood up and preached the word. And when he preached the word and he preached Christ crucified and risen, they were cut to the heart. And they were converted. And because of the sovereign work of God, they continued in these things. I think there's a lesson we can learn here. It was a sovereign work of God, but was a sovereign work of God came by means. And what was the means by which it came? It was the means of preaching Christ, of preaching Christ crucified and risen as the promised one from the Old Testament. And I say to you, my dear brethren, when we find lagging persistence in our churches, what should we do? I believe we need to do what Peter did. Preach Christ. Preach Christ crucified. Preach Christ risen again. Preach Christ. It was in the preaching of Christ that these spiritual activities came. They came from that. And if we want to have churches like this, then we need to preach Christ. Because it's in preaching Christ as Peter did on the day of Pentecost, that all of these things happen. Well, I move on to my third observation about this committed church. And as I told you, I plan to spend most of my time here because that's where our text is. The activities that characterized the committed church. It's an easy outline. All you got to do is follow your Bible. The Apostles doctrine. Fellowship. Breaking of bread and prayers. Um, let's look at them. The Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles were the ones who preached. And they preached because Christ chose them. They preached because Christ had gifted them. They preached because Jesus Christ gave them to the church. It was the apostles who did the preaching. And we must notice in our text that it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine. This means that you had 3000 people who acknowledged the authority and the place of the apostles. Wow. They knew that the authority rested with these men because they recognized and acknowledged that Christ had chosen these men. And so they listened to these men because they were the chosen ones of God. We must always lead our people back to the apostles because it is Jesus Christ who chose these men. It is Jesus Christ who gifted these men. It is Jesus Christ by his spirit who guided these men to write down the words of our New Testament. And just as these people 
we're bound by the apostles' doctrine. So we need to teach our people that they are bound by the apostles' doctrine. We're not apostles. I don't have to go into a lengthy argument to prove that to you. And if I do, I think the membership committee will meet with you. (laughs) We're not apostles, but we have the apostles' message. And because we have the apostles' message, we must always let our people know that we're teaching them what the apostles have said. And that the authority rests with them, not with us. And so that we attempt to create in them this spirit that the Bereans had. That they will search the scriptures to see if what we say as preachers is right. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. But they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, what did these men teach? I've been a gospel minister for over 40 years. It takes at least that long to cover it, and then I don't think I've covered it yet. They taught the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. If we can fast forward just a little while, a little further into the book of Acts, remember what the Apostle Paul said. To the Ephesian elders, he says, I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And so when the apostles were teaching them, they taught them everything Jesus had taught them. I like to imagine in my mind what would have happened when those people went to their homes at night after they'd heard one of the apostles teaching Did you hear that? We had not. We didn't know that. Did you hear that when Jesus went to the city of Nain, that there was a young man being carried out in a coffin and he stopped the procession and he touched the coffin and told the young man to arise and he sat up and started speaking. Oh, the power of Christ. Now, what these 12 men didn't know yet was what. The Lord Jesus later revealed to the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul was told things that these men did not yet know. But we know them, or at least we think we know them, or we try to know them. We study to figure out what he's saying. But the point is that they taught them the Apostles' doctrine. But this much we can say. What is the Apostles' doctrine? Well, you know, there is a central truth to the apostles' doctrine. It's sort of like when you learn to play the piano. Some of you are musicians here. I'm not a musician, but I took a few piano lessons. I remember when I started learning the piano that the first thing I had to learn, the very, very first thing, and I think everyone who ever learns piano has to learn this, it's the first lesson. You learn where what is? Where middle C is. Middle C. You've got, if you find middle C, then you can figure out the rest of the piano. That's the, that's, the, that's the idea. And indeed, you can. You can figure, I mean, it takes a while, I know, and some, some of us never figured out completely, but at least we can get started with middle C. Well, that's sort of the way it is with the Apostles' Doctrine. You've got to start at middle C, 
before you start tickling the ivories in the treble clef, way up high. And you've got to learn middle C before you start tickling the ivories in the bass down toward the bottom. What is middle C? Well, the Apostle Paul summarizes it for us very clearly. He says to the Corinthians, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I am confident that as the apostles taught their doctrine, that what they were teaching was they were teaching the doctrine of Jesus Christ and him crucified. They were not teaching them Primarily, and first of all, all the upper ranges of the great doctrines of the faith. They did that. But when they did it, they always came back to middle C. Now, what's the point I'm making? Well, here's what I'm trying to say. I'm not making myself clear, so I'll try to be very blunt and plain. We preachers, and I'm talking to myself here. Because this has been true of me in my ministry at different times. Sometimes we get sidetracked on very important theological notes. Now, maybe that never happened to you. But it's happened to me. And there's something we feel like we need to teach our people. And so we begin to teach that and emphasize it. It may be the low notes of the judgment and the wrath of God because they do not have the fear of God as they ought. It may be the high notes of the glories of God's grace in heaven and what the future is going to look like on earth and in heaven. But what I'm saying is all of this whole counsel of God ultimately has to come right back down to middle sea so that we preach Christ, because it's all related to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be careful that we are always Johnny, one notes, middle C, coming back to Christ. And let us not get sidetracked and make our Johnny, one notes about the family, about the law, about evangelism. It's Jesus Christ. All of those things are important. But they were steadfastly adhering to the apostles' doctrine. We know the apostles were emphasizing Jesus Christ, him crucified. That's what Paul did. And I say to you, brothers, that's what we must do. Teach the apostles' doctrine. Well, let's move on to the second spiritual activity. That uh, these people are involved in the second one in in the Bible, and I sort of like to take the uh, list as it comes to us here in the Bible. I think that's probably a good order. So we'll look at it second. It's uh, fellowship. Fellowship is what we read. Now, um, this is a big word. Um, It's a huge word. It's. We have fellowship dinners, or many of our churches do. That's good. We have fellowship times. That's wonderful. We sometimes think of fellowship as conversing with one another about the scriptures. It is, but it's bigger than that. It's much, much bigger than that. Um, 
Let me read you a quotation from Gordon Ketty, who I think has a wonderful little insight into fellowship in his little book of commentary on Acts. Ketty said, fellowship is Christ-centered mutual affection and actions. I'm going to repeat those last two words. And actions. Mutual affection and actions. And includes everything from joining in worship to conversations, meals, and working together. In all the activities of the Christian community, as it grows internally and reaches out eternally. And then he gives a quotation from Matthew Henry. He says, Matthew Henry says, wherever you saw one disciple, you would see more like birds of a feather. Like birds of a feather. We have some indication in the book of Acts how it was that fellowship worked itself out. Look at chapter two, verse 46. So they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Here they are fellowshipping, continuing together from house to house. Uh, we we see in, in chapter two, verse 44, that the sharing was so profound that they willingly, it says, had all things in common. And verse 45, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This was a fellowshipping church. They ate together. They worshiped together. They talked together. They shared their possessions together. They sold their possessions so that they could share it with others. It was a true fellowshipping church. It could have been called the first fellowship church of Jerusalem, I suppose. It was a fellowshipping church. And we, we know as we trace this fellowship on through the book of Acts that it was, it was a, a fellowship that, that sometimes needed great organization and careful planning. I'm thinking of Acts chapter 6. You remember in Acts chapter 6, there was a problem that arose in the church because some of the widows were being overlooked in the daily um, distribution of the uh, food which they needed. And so the apostles, under the guidance of the Spirit, very wisely called the church together and said, we need seven men. They selected seven men who will take care of this business. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Seven men to take care of how many widows? Seven, maybe 14. Well, probably more than that, because um, we do know that there were 3000 who were converted on the day of Pentecost. We know that when we come over to chapter four, verse four, that there were 5000 men, males, not counting the females and the others. And then in chapter 5 and verse 14, we read that there were multitudes of both men and women added to the Lord. So by the time we come to chapter 6, we, we read about these widows. Now, I don't know how many widows there were, but I suggest to you 
that conservatively we could say that there were hundreds of widows. And you got seven men serving hundreds of widows. They didn't have email. They didn't have the benefit of the printing press. So I don't know whether they made the announcement at their general meetings where the deacons would get up and say, brothers and sisters, we have a fellowship opportunity. You have a fellowship opportunity and your fellowship opportunity is we need food. We need food for the widows and ladies, your fellowship opportunity is we men need some help in distributing this food to these widows. I can't imagine it would have been anywhere, any other way. These deacons had to have organizational skills. And you see, they, this was permitting the people there, the saints in Jerusalem, to use the gifts which God had given them in the ministry and commonly sharing together and working together and laboring together in this ministry of feeding the widows. They would need the gift of administration, Romans chapter 12. They would need the gift of mercy, Romans chapter 12. You can use these gifts now and use them for the glory of God and meeting the need. Here's your fellowshipping opportunities. And as we go through the New Testament, we find out that there were other fellowshipping opportunities as well. We see how the fellowship developed in the maturing church in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5 where Paul rejoices in the fellowship of the gospel from the first day till now. And he was rejoicing because they were laboring together with him and they were giving him money so that he could continue the work there in Philippi. And, and the fellowship of all the churches together when they elected this trusted brother to help Paul carry the gift for the needy saints in Jerusalem. They were fellowshipping together. Pastors tend to be like apostles. We're not apostles, but we tend to be like them. Pastors want to do it all. And pastors can't do it all. Pastors need deacons. So that the church does not neglect. Fellowship. True fellowship. Deacons who will be able to organize. And meet the needs, the peculiar needs of the congregation and the community in which God in his providence has placed the church. This was a fellowshipping church. A fellowshipping church. This is what characterized the church. Well, I must move on. And the third spiritual activity is the breaking of bread. Now... <clears throat> What is this breaking of bread? It's the Lord's Supper. Um, let me just give you a summary statement, a paraphrase, I should say, from the um, Expositor's Greek New Testament. The author said, let's not forget in arguing that this is the Lord's Supper and not just eating together in each other's homes. He says, let us not forget that the author of Acts has behind him Pauline language. It's always good to remember who wrote Acts. Who wrote it? Luke. Who was he a companion with? Paul. Did he ever hear Paul preach? Yes. He knew Paul's use of language. 
the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And when he had given thanks, he broke it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Luke himself wrote in Acts 20, verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, on the first day of the week. Now I just make one observation here, and that is, that the breaking of bread doesn't happen to be first in the list. It happens to be third in the list. Now, I don't know what that means, but I do know, I believe, one thing it means. And that is that the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, or what some traditions call the altar, was not central in their worship. Uh, The Roman Catholic tradition, the Orthodox tradition... Others put it central, but it's third. Someday, I thought as I studied this, and maybe someone's already done it, is going to write their Ph. dissertation on why it is that the breaking of bread is third and not first. But the harder question is, why is it third and not second? And I don't know the answer to that. But I do know this much. that the Apostles' Doctrine came first. And then it was fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. The breaking of bread is an essential spiritual activity in our churches. It is so important. It is important because our Lord Jesus Christ commanded it. And it is important because it It shows us the central truth of the faith of Jesus Christ. The central truth. Our confession says, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed, to be observed in his churches under the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself in his death, It shows forth that. And then secondly, the confirmation of the faith of the believers in all the benefits thereof. When we come to the table, it's a confirmation of our faith. And then their spiritual nourishment. And as these believers in that church in Jerusalem broke bread together as it was given to them, they received spiritual nourishment. They fed by faith on the crucified Christ. Once again, we see that Christ crucified central in the thinking and the practice of that church. And then the confession goes on to say, and growth in him. Oh, The best way to grow is to come to Christ. Behold our Lord Jesus crucified. As the middle sea, we must never get past the basics. We must always come back to the basics and to the Lord's Supper. This is, as I said, an extremely 
important spiritual activity of the church. The breaking of bread. And I have reason to believe that all of our churches take this very seriously. Some practice weekly, some practice monthly. This early church for a while practiced daily. None of us have attained to that. But they broke bread. They remembered Christ. We must be careful, of course, because, as you know, the mood of the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century tends towards form and formalism and liturgy. There's a trek back by some who profess to be evangelicals, a trek back to Rome in some cases, a trek back to Greek orthodoxy or Episcopalianism. In an AP article in 2007, the writer Tom Breen pointed out that about one-third of all U.S. Orthodox priests are converts now. He highlighted one particular pastor by the name of Reverend John Dixon. He came out of the old regular Baptist of the South, and that's the last place I expect to find an Orthodox priest. But that's where he came from. And listen to what Dixon said. He said, as soon as I came, meaning to an Orthodox church, as soon as I came to an Orthodox church, I knew I was home. Joseph Honeycutt of Houston was raised in Southern Baptist, and he said on his first visit to an Orthodox church, he was filled with a, it was filled with the smell of incense and the sound of chanted divine liturgy. And he says, I have become convinced that the Eucharist was the center of Christian worship, ancient Christian worship. Once I reached that point in my personal walk with Christ, there was no going back. Dear Mr. Honeycutt is third in the list. The altar is not central. The word is. The breaking of bread is essential and important. But it doesn't. Dominate, as some would have it. So we must follow the scriptures. Well, moving quickly on to the fourth spiritual activity, and that's prayers. Certainly here what, the, what Luke is referring to is, is public prayer at this point. Just as all the other things are public, the apostles' doctrine, the fellowshipping, the laboring together there in the church, the breaking of bread, it's a church activity, the prayers is a church activity. We know that the apostles in Acts chapter 4 are recorded as going up to the temple for, at prayer. And a balanced church must be a praying church. Prayer for the special needs, for the general needs. John Calvin says in commenting, he says, and for this cause, it is not sufficient for men to make their prayers at home by themselves. Now, Calvin's not saying that you should never pray at home by yourself, but he's writing in the context of this verse. He says to make their prayers at home by themselves, unless they meet all together to pray. And what he means there, unless the church happens to meet in the home as the church, then it's fine to pray in the home. In other words, he's saying the emphasis here is that we meet together 
to pray. Gordon Ketty said prayer was a priority with frequent prayer meetings. Corporate prayer is one of the universal essentials of a healthy church life. And indeed it is. We must not give up corporate prayer. It must be a part of church life just as the apostles doctrine and the fellowshipping and the breaking of bread. So prayers must be a part of our church life. If we and 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 it seems to me from my observation that many churches, I'm not talking about Reformed Baptist churches. I don't think this is true, but many churches are giving up the prayer meeting. We are greatly impacted by the culture in which we live. And there's so many other things that would be neat to do. But I tell you what, it's essential that we pray. We need to deep dip into Spurgeon's only a prayer meeting once in a while. Spurgeon reminds us, he says, the first public worship service recorded in all the world was a prayer meeting. Genesis 4.26. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Spurgeon goes on to say, and I I paraphrase him, he says, this was Enish, the son of Seth. Now, no doubt individual men had prayed before, but it appears this refers to the first public meetings for the worship of the Lord. And those meetings were for prayer. It may have been a small band in that church that prayed, but the fruit was a godly line that rested on Noah and the saving of our race. Men begin to call upon the Lord. Pray, pray, pray. Prayer needs to characterize our church life, even as it characterized the life of this early church. Now, I just have one more observation to make about this committed church. And that is that there was joy in everything that this committed church did verses 46 and 47. So they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Let us never forget that all of these great spiritual activities are spiritual activities which were done with Gladness. It was a joy to them. And when church becomes a drudgery. Or when churches begin to have their pews filled with people who consider it a drudgery to come to the Lord's Supper, a drudgery to listen to sermons, a drudgery to pray, a drudgery to fellowship together and labor together for the common cause of the gospel, there is something desperately wrong with our churches. Because all of these activities were done with gladness. Great joy and great gladness. What should we do, brethren, if our churches are joyless? There is a tendency to start batting people over the head with their duty. 
But I suggest to you that before we do that, before we do that, we must come back to Acts 2 and do what Peter did. And that is preach Christ and Him crucified and risen again. Cause our people to fall in love with Christ. And then direct them to how it is that they can express this love. How they must express this love. And they will want to express this love in these ways. In persisting in the Apostles' Doctrine. And in loving it and rejoicing in the sermons they hear. Assuming they're good sermons. But you guys all preach good sermons. I've heard you. Persisting in the Apostles' Doctrine. Persisting in the fellowshipping. So that the common efforts of the congregation laboring together are times of joy and gladness. Persisting in the breaking of breads, coming to the communion table with expectation. Here I meet Christ. Here I feed on Christ. Here I am spiritually nourished. Here is where I will grow in this means of grace which God has given and persisting in prayers. May God give us churches like this. Do you have a church like this? I hope you do. Do you want a church like this? I hope you do. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. Preach Christ and expect that God will give you that kind of a church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that we are given here in this chapter of this early church. We pray that you grant that our churches may be like this first Jerusalem church. Oh, Lord, hear our prayers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.